The views and opinions expressed by guests on this program are not necessarily the views of Thinking Bigger Business Media, Inc. or its employees. Welcome to Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. Get the inside scoop on how America's most successful business owners transformed their entrepreneurial vision into reality. And listen in as some of the top business minds in the country serve up practical advice, tips, and insights for growing your business. Now, here's your host, Kelly Scanlon. Good morning. Welcome to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher of Thinking Bigger Business Media. And our guest today is Robert Schur. He is the founding principal of CEO to CEO, and that's a firm that improves the skills of chief executives, people like you, of mid-market companies who are navigating major shifts in their business or their marketplace. He's also the author of the book, The Feel of the Deal, How I Built My Company Through Acquisitions. He was also the CEO of a publishing company for more than 20 years before launching CEO to CEO in 2007. Welcome to the show today, Robert. Thank you, Kelly. Glad to be here. Well, and you and I have talked, and you know that the reason that I called and asked you to be on the show is because I saw a post that you put on LinkedIn that really caught my attention, and it was about dissatisfied employees being critical to high performance a high performance work environment you know why you need dissatisfied employees that was the exact title and i i looked at that and i thought really everything that we hear as business owners tells us we should have satisfied employees and what we need to do to keep our employees and our staff satisfied and so i thought dissatisfied employees i have to talk to this person and so here we are why are dissatisfied employees critical to a high-performance work environment? Well, you know, it's, it's it's really funny. And when you first think about it, you say, what? Now, how can that be? We want our people mm-hmm. to be happy and uh, and comfortable in their jobs. But when the research is really done, you really look at it. And, in fact, when you really think about it, what jumps out is that people that are really engaged, and they use that term a lot in the world of HR, are engaged in accomplishing a specific goal. They're, they're trying to get something done. And and at the heart of that is a sense of dissatisfaction. And let's just pull it out of the business world just for a minute and just think of the Olympics, for example. Mm-hmm. When an Olympic athlete's training, that year before they go to try to win the gold medal, are they satisfied? I mean, not at all. That's no. They're, they're kind of burning up with that, that energy to say, I want to make something different in the future. I want to make a change. And, and so when you think that through from a workplace, if you've got a team of executives who are comfortable in their job, they're not being stressed, they come to work, they're fairly relaxed, is that the kind of team that's going to drive your business to the next level? And I would argue that it isn't. And even if you take that down into any employee, when I've had employees in my own company, for example, who um, were a little dissatisfied with one of the results that they were trying to get, even uh, people on a shipping crew where they're trying to ship out boxes and packages. You know, if they get a little upset when something comes back damaged or when there's a 0.5% uh, error rate or mistake rate coming back, it was those times when I had teams and people like that that we really got better and that we moved the organization forward. Absolutely. It's it's that constant striving for a higher standard and to to continually better whatever performance 
they've already been able to match. So so that 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 makes sense in that context. Now, you also uh discuss the five common causes of low performance environments. Obviously, before you can have a high performance environment, you have to be able to recognize the signature characteristics of a low performance environment and do something about those. So, would you mind walking through those five characteristics or causes for us, please? Absolutely, Kelly. And and you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of a lot of us might think that, you know, to get people dissatisfied and fired up, you're going to give them speeches and push them and talk to them and crack the whip, so to speak. And that's really not the uh, the approach that's going to work well. What what I see in all of my clients is, is five common causes. One is that what the team is supposed to do, and in fact what each individual is supposed to do, isn't really clear and really spelled out. Mm-hmm. Is the sales team supposed to just sell more, or are they supposed to break into more new accounts, or are they supposed to expand more new accounts? Uh, with uh, a ship back to the simple shipping crew example, is it accuracy? Is it the quality? You know, what are those kinds of things? And if we had to graph them, how, what would be the formula to graph them? Mm-hmm. And um, it's, uh, it can be challenging. A lot of environments don't have that. And so when you really say to someone, how do you know when you're succeeding? How do you measure your success? They're like, well, I just work hard or I should just <laughs> be here. They, they can't really put their finger on it. That's the yeah. first one. Well, and they may be working harder but not smarter. And the other thing is is if there's no spelled out clear guidelines for performance and and goals then they may the team members may actually be working at odds with each other because they may each have their own individual different goals that they've they've settled upon. Well, absolutely. And and this point is well well taken that it's not just individual goals uh or measures, but it's team measures as well. Mm-hmm. And it's actually important to balance the two because you don't want a bunch of individual performers just trying to hit their own targets without thinking about the overall organization. So a balance is important. Right. The second part is sort of the the actual target. So what what is success? If I'm a salesperson, this is probably the easiest one, how much do I have to sell until I say I have done a great job? What's that exact point? And, you know, um, it, it doesn't just apply in the world of sales. It could be in quality or it could be the date by which the new product has to launch if I'm launching new products. Um, having that be so clear brings it up to the front of people's minds, and they know that if I can get to that, then I win. And that's a huge step. It's often missing. It can be hard at first to put that point and say, what is that realistic but achievable target? Um, But it has to be done, and there's a a process to phase that in. Now, the other side of this, for for environments that are already highly productive but want to take it to the next level, is putting the failure point in. This is scary. This is saying that if you don't at least do X, we'll consider that a complete failure. If the Mm. product is launched after December 31st, we have failed. If it's launched before December 1st, we have succeeded. That kind of range. And and it's interesting when you think about it, and they've done uh, uh, research on airplane pilots. Airplane pilots aren't motivated by a concept of success, meaning I landed smoothly and beautifully and the plane was not bouncy. They're motivated by a concept of failure. Do not crash the plane yes. when landing. And so both have very powerful effects on how we think and how we uh, drive forward. Right. Well, and whenever you're talking about the definitions of success and failure, the other thing that forces you to do 
is really take a look at your business and understand the analytics of your business because you can't you can't do that step unless you understand the numbers in your business and a, and a lot of times goals are set that aren't achievable or that are that are, that are so low that it doesn't push the business forward. So to be able to do number two, you have to have a very strong knowledge of your business, of the numbers in your business and your financials, uh, especially when it comes to the sales part, in order to set ac- you know, those accurately where they're just they're high so that people can strive for them. You know, they're not easy to obtain, but they're not uh, they, they don't discourage people either. So uh, that that's a very important point, I think. That's absolutely true, and I do a lot of work with business planning and introducing formal business planning into companies. And one mm-hmm. of the arts is to introduce it, but not be too aggressive about it, so that people get used to these measures. Mm-hmm. The measures also develop themselves. Sometimes those first measures aren't maybe ideal, or they have some unintended consequences. But just the presence of you know measures and the presence of targets makes a massive difference in and of itself. And so. Sure. So that's a, you know the the, uh, the the next point, and then you know another lever that's really really important is visibility or exposure. It's great to have a business plan. It's great to have measures and targets, but as humans, when we realize that other people can see whether or not we did it, whether or not we achieved, mm-hmm. it makes us pay so much more attention. Right. Uh, and and so lack of visibility is one of those issues that. Um, that really plagues the performance environment. And it takes a little courage to make it visible, and we can talk more about that later. But that lack of visibility of other peers seeing whether or not we're performing is really harmful for a, for a performance environment. Absolutely. And then, then number four goes to the leader. It does. It does. And most of the CEOs that I work with, we're nice. We don't want to be mean. We're not we're not Donald Trump by any measure. No. And what happens often is we get people in that are good people and they're nice people, but they're not performing. And we shy away from or hesitate from letting them know, making it uh, uncomfortable. And and it's okay. And well, the market was down, and we're selling ice cream, and it was a blizzard, and you know, there's there's always reasons that we can have. And so we make it okay. And that um, that resistance to making poor performance feel uncomfortable also helps create a low-performance environment. Yes. What strikes me as interesting between three and four is that a lot of times business owners or CEOs will not uh, highlight the good performance, the, the excellent performance of the, the high performers. However, even even when the low performers are not made to feel uncomfortable, that speaks for itself. The CEO or the, the managers don't even have to point that out because everybody knows it and everybody sees it. And that, it, in my mind, that actually discourages the higher performing people. So uh, e- even though you don't call it out, it's it's still noticed, and and that can have an impact on who the people who were your high performers. Absolutely. Well, a little later I'll talk about a specific way of thinking about that, but mm-hmm. but I'll give you a good example of what you kind of just described. Uh, when I take a, a, a company into formal planning, we create plans, of course, but what we do every month is we sit down the entire management team, and there's a projector, and it projects everybody's one-page plan and has graphs about how each person did, which they've created, of course. And that right there is a visibility move because everyone knows that everyone else is going to be looking at how they performed. 
Mm-hmm. Now, sitting there, the CEO doesn't have to do too much work. When you see great results, you simply say, oh, my goodness, you, you went 30% past your target. That's amazing. Everybody joins in on that. Right. And that person gets acknowledged. When the next slide comes up, and maybe it's the next executive, and it looks really ugly, the CEO doesn't have to say, you idiot, what, how could you? No. Everyone mm-hmm. just kind of groans because you see it. And sure. there's a CEO, and others often say, well, how can we help? What can we do to make that different? What caused it? And a discussion ensues. That's uncomfortable. Would you want to be the executive that has to get helped and explain why you didn't hit your numbers? And right. the CEO can be as nice as he or she wants to be, but that's an example of making it emotionally uncomfortable. I would suspect that in companies that employ that kind of an exercise, that even before you come into the meeting, if you know your numbers are low, you're going to be doing everything that you can not to be the catalyst for those kinds of discussions. That because you just because you know that that's what's going to happen in the meeting, you do everything you can to make sure your numbers are in a place where you're not going to be the point of discussion. And, and that right there contributes to a high-performing environment. Exactly. Funny story. So in one of my clients, we had one of these situations, and it had been the second or third month where this particular executive wasn't getting his numbers. And, and so I said, let's do a session right now. And you know, I want to hear what each of you would do if you were in Joe's place, given these tough numbers. And so we went through that, and, and Joe took it well, and people had different ideas. And the next month when we came in, he cracked the joke in front of everybody. He says, I don't want to be the one getting the help session this time now. <laughs> and so, you know, that pressure, just like you said, really, really challengeable, really, really powerful. And what's interesting is the discipline of managing uh, is exactly what you described, Kelly, is that when you see your own results being poor, of course that meant you could see them, mm-hmm. uh, that before anything else happens, you're in there ahead of the time. How can I solve this? What do we have to do differently? And you walk into that meeting with a solution that you're implementing to fix mm-hmm. the problem. That's great executive work. That's what we're trying right. to encourage, and uh, and it really happens. Right. Now, in every company, you say that there is a range between the high performers and the low performers. Now, what in, in a low-performance environment, how does that range look? The range looks wide. So if you think about an executive team, and I do this all the time with CEOs, hey, let's just grade your executive team based on your just gut about how they're doing. And, oh, I've got two A's, and I've got a B minus, and then I have uh, two C's. You know, they're they're really nice, but they're not so good. So the range is that distance between the highest performer, how well they do their job, and the lowest performer. And in low-performance environments, the range is broad. So you've got a couple of really low performers, maybe one or two really high performers, and a few sprinkled in between. Mm-hmm. And that uh, is always a bad sign. Now, why is that a bad sign? What, what, explain to us why that's an issue. But the biggest issue is that when you have um, medium performers that see that there are low performers below them, mm-hmm. they know that there's no accountability. They know that that's been allowed. And medium performance, this is on any team, and you can even look at a whole broad mix of populations, and you'll see this, the middle performers will tend to slump down towards the bottom because there's no consequence, and they're not at the bottom of the line. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is the high performers get arrogant. They know they're way better than most of the other people on the team, and they get very hard to manage and very demanding. Sure. And that's that's what happens. Um, and you kind of described it just from your own experience, Kelly, that you know those people at the top see that 
the people at the bottom aren't getting pushed, and they go mm-hmm. home thinking, why, why did I work 10 hours today? Mm-hmm. Why am I driving to bring this organization forward when all my hard work gets bollocked up by those two? Right, right. Yeah, and you see that all the time. So let's go back to the CEO. The CEO, top person, their commitment is absolutely essential to creating a high-performance environment. What are some of the cornerstones of that commitment? From what, from your experience and from your research, what are those? What is the cornerstone? Well, one of them is that the leader has to acknowledge that it's their job to create a work environment where people are all driving. That it's their responsibility. It's not HR's responsibility. It's not. Uh, the morale that floats around that there are things that that CEO can and will do to make sure they're tailoring that environment over time. So that's the okay. first thing. Accept responsibility for that. Okay. Accept responsibility and realize that no one other than the CEO really has that kind of control to mm-hmm. modify a work environment. And this takes time, but to modify it to where it's more like an Olympic team than uh, than not uh, or any other high-performance team. So um, – and, and, and what does that commitment mean? So that commitment means ongoing, um, uh, constant activity. It's, you know, I, I wish it were as simple as let's throw a pizza party and this and that and the other, and people will feel better, they'll be happy, and then we'll be great. And, uh, and maybe they'll be happy, but it doesn't mean that we're going to drive performance up to the next level. So it's, it's a commitment. It's a, it's a marathon. It's a, it's a perennial, uh, nonstop um, approach to this. That will keep that will bring the performance environment up, and will keep it where it needs to be. Okay. Now you also talk about several levers that can be used to tune the performance in the workplace. They're very similar to the causes of low performance that kind of turned on their head. And I'd like to get into those for a few minutes, and then some of the caveats too for how to go about the tuning in in a company. So so let's start with the first lever, which you say is increase measures and exposure. Right, right. And so um, for each, <clears throat> certainly for each department, when I, when I introduce this to a company, I start typically with the CEO, and the mm-hmm. CEO introduces measures of their own performance and the company's performance overall. And then it goes to the top team, and then eventually it can filter down to the rest of the team. But everyone has to say, here's how I'm going to track my success. And I like to think of it in terms of success, and it can be failure as well, but if I'm doing a great job, how will I know it? What will those digits be? And uh, in sales, for example, it's a little bit less challenging. And things like marketing, it can be more challenging, softer skills. But there's almost always something we can come up with, whether it's lead generation, a typical result of marketing, um, even in engineering departments. There are measures of performance that exist or that can be developed that are really important. So we have to implement those. And I'm a fan of doing fewer rather than more, especially at the start. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there's sort of two versions of measures. There's a measure of results, which are mo- more, most powerful. But there's also a measure of behaviors, the things that we do. And often when we're introducing these, it's important to have both because people have to feel like they have control over some of them, the behaviors in particular, mm-hmm. and that they can hit their mark if they just do what they're supposed to do. So a balance of those are important. And then the exposure is the other element. So at the executive level, exposing everyone's results to everyone else's should be an easy step. It's going to be uncomfortable if it's not been done before. But in that small room with four, six, eight executives, uh, that level of openness should be there. For broader teams, um, I typically recommend introducing it with a little bit more care at the start. 
teams, I had a team of graphic designers, very quiet, very sensitive people. Um, in that case, you introduce those stats very slowly. Maybe you make everyone's stats or the group stats visible to individuals first, mm -hmm. but not another individual statistics in, in, visible to another. Because you don't right. want to create negativity and embarrassment. So there's a balance there. But when I say a lever, you know, it's, it's about adjusting it up one step and then observing the results because all of this takes time. Absolutely. So and then moving along to the next one, you talk about defining success and failure. So, so that's <clears throat> the point at the end of the graph to say by December 31st, we will sell $32 million of this product. Being that specific about the number that we're shooting for and I'm defining success, hugely important, really has to be there everywhere. And for those organizations that already have good performance, defining failure really takes it up another notch in to say we are not going to accept performance below this number. <clears throat> the other thing that's interesting is that when you start the process, you may have more measures and more targets, but if you want to really amp up the pressure, you're already largely there, reduce that number to say what are the one or two important things that that CFO has to deliver for us to be successful. And if you shrink the number of measures, you cut away excuses, you cut away other ways to win, and they're going to put more and more emphasis on those one or two items. And well, and if you choose, carefully choose the one or two items, they'll probably bring up a lot of the other uh, items as well. That in, in accomplishing that those one or two, they've also accomplished several others that you didn't even have to spell out. Absolutely. If you choose them wisely. I, I want to go to the failure, defining the failure piece just a bit. That that can be kind of touchy because it goes back again to the CEO and the management team. If you put it out there, this is the failure level, and then you let people slide, I mean, especially if you're in a tweaking stage, if you're introducing this new to people, how, for lack of a better word, how draconian do you get about it, especially in the beginning? If there's failure, do you, in order to to show that you're serious about this, do you then have to fire those people who don't make it, or do you treat it as a is a some sort of a discipline issue uh, because it's it is something that's been newly introduced how do you how do you handle that failure part you don't get draconian and you especially don't get draconian when you're introducing it. it's mm -hmm. um you can cause a reaction to planning and a reaction to this process that goes negative that people just feel yes. like you're being mean and what normally happens is most CEOs will then back off because they realize that everybody including their good people aren't getting it they aren't getting the uh, the thrust that's coming out of performance, they're not feeling good yet about their positive results. So when I introduce this to a new organization that's typically been more informal, uh, we don't introduce the failure uh, target at all. Okay. Um, it's, it's an advanced piece. Once we're already running, we're really driving hard. And honestly, in organizations that have developed the ability to forecast. So a new organization may not really know what their sales are going to be. They haven't gone through the exercise enough to figure it out. They haven't tested the metal of their teams enough to see how they react when they're missing their targets. Do they redouble their efforts? Do they know what to do? All mm -hmm. those are unknowns. And right. so to set a failure tar a failure line in the beginning is probably too much. But once it's established and once you're able to make those forecasts and once you know that certain uh, goals and behaviors can be accomplished and reached, then if you don't do something about it, you end up into those low performance issues that we discussed earlier. Well, let's say lower. So 
So it's not high performance or low performance. That's There's true. a whole range in between. And and I think that's an important point you bring up. If you're uh, backed by venture capital, your job is going to be to grow as fast as you possibly can, maximize ROI, you know, to heck with sleep, we have to make this thing happen. <laughs> that's right. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's a whole lot of businesses out there that don't want that environment. They want to work hard. They want to grow 10 or 15% per year. But uh, they want it to be more comfortable. And it goes to what the CEO wants. And that's okay. That's okay. I'm an advocate of saying pick, pick the level of performance you want that fits your lifestyle and what's comfortable for you. But then you have to tend that environment and manage to that. Okay. The next lever is amplifying a significant emotional discomfort, going back to what you talked about before. Talk about it in, in the reverse now. Absolutely. So, so just having measures and targets and having some visibility around those gets you maybe 20 or 30% of the way. So that's a huge help. But so many of us, and I'm, I'm thinking of a, a client right now, that see someone not performing well, and how do you, how do you approach them and what do you do? Um, and... You know, some of this is just known best practices. When you have someone not hitting the mark, you've got to sit down with them. You've got to be able to express yourself and say, you know, you didn't hit it, and I was disappointed in what you did and how you went about it, and here's the effect of that. What are we going to do? What are you going to do to improve that performance? So that hard conversation has to happen, and it doesn't have to be yelling and screaming. I'd argue it shouldn't be. It can be very caring, but you have to get that across the table. Other ways that you increase pressure is you – meet more often. It may be that whereas you delegated managing the entire marketing function to this executive, now in your weekly one-on-ones, which of course you should be having, you're going to say, I want to get some of the details of these two programs. I'm concerned. I need a report that shows this information. That's all ways of conveying, uh, putting some pressure, creating some discomfort for that person to really perform. Right. And it can amplify if it needs to then it might be that, look, if we don't have this accomplished in 90 days, I'm going to conclude that you're not the right leader for that effort. So, you know, you got you got to perform. Now is the time. Um, you know, that's those are some right. of the key elements of, of uh, making it uncomfortable. Well, and one of the things that I had been advised several years ago to do is, first of all, you don't make it about the person. You make it about the numbers. You objectify it. And it doesn't mean it doesn't get into an I don't I don't like you or or anything personal or subjective. It's these are the numbers, and when you when you have the conversation, it's about the numbers. These aren't the numbers that we needed to be at, or whatever. And and that the numbers don't lie, and and you it becomes the the numbers that are telling the story and and takes the personalities out of it because so often that's where these conversations go is to they they get too personal and subjective, and, right. and and then everybody goes away unhappy. That's right. And when you have good planning and you have measures and you have targets, you're exactly right. The, the graph is sitting there in front of us, and the question is, can you hit your number or can't you? And mm-hmm. if you can't, why not? And often people will, uh, will take care of themselves. They'll either right. step it up or they'll say, you know what, this isn't for me. I don't like this much pressure. Uh, I want to go back to my old job, or or they'll leave, or who knows what. Absolutely. Now, the last lever that you talk about is going back to that range and tightening it up between the uh, levels of acceptable performance, the high performers and the low performers. Talk to us about how to tighten that up. So, uh, you know, part of it ties into this whole process. One is if you make it uncomfortable for low performers, they'll either step it up, which is what we want, and they aren't a low performer anymore, or 
you expose how bad of a performer they are, and they leave or you fire them. Uh, so one way we tighten up the range is we work hard on other performers, and we fix them or fire them. That tightens up the range. Uh, and the other thing is how we select and hire people so that we don't keep hiring low performers, or if we do, we roll them in and out very, very quickly so that we keep bringing in people towards the upper middle end of that range, and that tends to tighten up the range. And it doesn't mean that we have to keep firing people until we have only one person. The range would be very, very small. But right. again, it's a stepwise approach to say, how can we expect our middle and high performers to feel good and to feel like they're driving things forward when they've got these laggards on the same team? Um, whenever I've uh, fired somebody on, in my company and they were part of a team, usually the most common reaction was, what took you so long? We're busting our butt over here, and they're you know playing on the internet and this and that. It was making us crazy. Right, right. It's noticed. It's it's yeah. very noticed. Uh, whether you realize it or not, as the owner or the manager, it is very noticed. So you have been very careful as you have laid out these four different levers for fine tuning performance in the workplace. Uh, you've been very careful to talk about introducing some of these gradually. So so what are some of the other tips you've laid out? What what the levers are, but what are some of the tips? for uh, using the levers? So one is that um, as a CEO, if you hear some of these concepts and you're like, wow, we, we're terrible at that, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to fix that next week. And you go in and you say, okay, now we're measuring everything. And the whole company will see it. Everybody will see it. We'll even put it on the yeah. – if you get too excited about this stuff and you make changes too quickly, you will break the system. Uh, people can only accept so much of this so fast. And so right. we want to think about both sides of this because we can't go from a low-performing team or a lower-performing team to, you know, the Navy SEALs in right. three weeks or even six months. It's one step at a time. There's a lot of great things inside your company already. This is about tweaking the environment. So you have to really think it through carefully. And instruments exist um, where you can even measure this and get numbers back about your your, uh, your company. And it kind of highlights some of the different areas because an environment is the sum total of what everybody thinks it is. It's not yes. what I think it is. It's certainly not what the CEO thinks it is. It's how everyone perceives the environment. So I'm just putting in a word of caution, much as I love higher, increasing performance of companies. Too fast, not good. Mm -hmm. The second point is that you can't make a bunch of change, six or eight changes all at once because each change affects another. So if we're gonna, if we don't have formal business planning, for example, and we're gonna put in measures and expose them to some number of people, that's two moves. Okay. That may be enough right there. And sure, maybe our terrible performers, we get rid of them a little bit faster. That's that's, but we don't want to do all of the things at once. Take two 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 actions, put them in place. Let's see how they settle. Let's see what happens. And right. Typically. You know, a change cycle is about six months, and I know sitting here that sounds like a really long time, but it may take you a month or six weeks to really implement those changes, and then takes a month or two for people to notice them. Executives are busy, they're doing their day jobs, mm -hmm. to really start to get in the swing of it, and then people start to feel that pressure, anticipate the pressure of the monthly planning meeting and say, wow, I better, two weeks away, I better focus on my things, here, my important things, because I want to look bad. That takes typically about six months. So okay. step, step one. Okay. So this is so, so to sum this up, this is a gradual process, can't expect overnight results. 
you will probably get, uh, there might be some confusion and pushback in the beginning as people adjust to the, the new way of doing things, but you can continue to fine-tune along the way. It's not just something that you have to throw out that has to be perfect all at once. It's it's going to be a process, and you have to be committed to it as a, as a CEO. If you're not, then uh, you're going to be be looked upon as a poor performer yourself. So. Exactly, and some CEOs have boards and have to perform, and those that don't, you know, love the notion of a well-tuned machine that really cranks forward. And and it's not only that you have to keep at it while you're getting it to the performance level you want, but you always have to monitor it because downturns affect it, losing key people, everything affects it. You have to keep thinking about how do I keep it where I need it to be. Absolutely. That's a great point. This isn't just a project that has a beginning and an ending point. This is something that is ongoing throughout the organization for as long as the organization exists because, as you say, there are constant variables, there are constant external forces and internal forces that can affect the entire uh, the entire thing. So as we wind up here, what what single idea, if you had to pick one idea or one concept that you wanted to leave our listeners with today, what would that be regarding high-performance environments? I think it, that it's the CEO's job yeah. and uh, that the CEO has to, when they look at all the things they have to accomplish, it's not just keeping the top line where it needs to be and keeping the bottom line where it needs uh, where it needs to be. But it's creating that environment that, that their whole team, their whole company comes to work and feels like this is a place where we deliver, this is a place where we perform, and they're engaged in that way, that that traces right back to the CEO. And that okay. if they can drive that, they will drive all of the other results. Yes, so we're talking to you listeners, the business owners out there, the CEOs. This is something that rests on your shoulders. And, Robert, if someone would like to get in touch with you to perhaps continue the conversation, buy your book, find out more about your newsletter, how would they get in touch with you? Well, you know, a a great direction, of course, is the web and www.ceotoceo.biz is my website. But uh, I normally start working with people with a phone call and a conversation to understand what they're trying to accomplish and and if I can help. And uh, so my phone number is 925-829-8190. All right. And is that also on the website? It sure is. Okay. Well, Robert, thank you so much uh, for your time today. A lot of valuable information. And, again, if you'd like to get in touch with Robert, CEO to CEO.biz, and the two is spelled out as T-O, CEO to CEO.biz. Uh, go out there, visit the website, give Robert a call, send him an email. I guess, and you can download your book from there or order your book through the website too. Uh, you can order the book from uh, from Amazon is probably okay. best. And then right. uh, I also frequently write for Forbes.com. I'm a blogger oh. there, and so that's another place where you kind of keep up with with my thinking and what I'm uh, learning and helping clients with. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.